morning, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. As we continue a series of messages on the seven churches of Revelation, these churches were comprised of real people living in real time and who because of their faith and their allegiance to Christ were experiencing some tough times. They were suffering. The Roman emperor Domitian was persecuting Christians. He was persecuting them because they failed. They refused to acknowledge him as divine. Christians in the first century refused to worship Greek deities and gods and goddesses. And due to the rapid growth of the gospel expanding and many coming to faith, they were viewed as a threat. Possibly they might revolt. So the easiest solution was to eliminate them, to ban them, to banish them, to arrest them, to crucify them. Uh, Many were arrested and fed to wild animals, some in the Colosseums, others just tortured and crucified. And it was in the face of such brutal and inhumane conditions that Christians began to flee for their lives, leaving jobs, leaving their homes, leaving family, leaving relatives. Someone might be thinking, well, all of that's good to know, but so what? What does that have to do with me today? Is any of that relevant for today? That was a couple of thousand years ago. And I want to propose to you again, these messages are relevant, first of all, in two ways. For us as a church, um, there's lessons to be learned as we study how God's churches were functioning in the first century, but there's also personal relevance for us as well. What happened to these seven churches of Asia Minor can also happen to us as individual Christians. Um, We saw last Sunday the church at Ephesus, they had left their first love. And so, for example, it's easy for you and I to lose our first love. Some of the churches had compromised. It's easy for us to compromise. And so on and on, there's relevance as we go through these seven churches. This morning, I want to invite you to consider with me the church of Smyrna. And so in Revelation chapter 2, we'll read there. The preface to this is, you remember, there's a promise in the book of Revelation, verse 3. Everyone who reads these words, who hears them, who keeps them will be blessed. That's in Revelation 1.3. That's how the book of Revelation begins. It also ends in Revelation 22.7 with the same promise. Blessed is everyone who keeps the words of this prophecy. And so I invite you to read with me about this suffering church In Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. 
Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Father, from your word, we also pray that you would give us ears to hear you, that your Holy Spirit, through the written word, proclaim that you would bear witness with us and speak to us and that we would hear you. We would hear your voice. We would hear your call. And God, that you would encourage us as your people, that you would revive and strengthen our faith. And all of it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First rule of all Bible study of approaching any text is what does this reveal to us about God? That's the first rule. What can I learn about God? What is the purpose of this text regarding the Lord? First, the text reveals that Jesus is the correspondent. Well, now, while John may write this, be sure Jesus is the one delivering the message. If you'll notice in verse 8, John, as he writes, hears and sees Jesus. He sees the risen, glorified Christ in glory, and he sees Jesus, if you remember, standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Do you remember what the lampstands were? Lampstands were the seven churches. So John sees Jesus risen, glorified with his church. And then he sees Jesus holding in his right hand seven stars. Those seven stars were the angels of each church. Jesus is the correspondent. And what John sees is that he sees the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ with his people, in the midst of the lampstands, he sees Jesus aware of everything in control as he holds them in his right hand. Then delivers this word to the angel of the church of Smyrna, or this angel, to the pastor, who the pastor then was to deliver this message along to the entire congregation with the intent to encourage them, to build them up, to revive them to renew their faith. How many of you would say this morning that your faith could stand a little reviving? Your confidence in the Lord, confidence in his word could be encouraged today. You perhaps need a faith lift. Then in verse 8, Jesus gets more specific about himself. If you, have your, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to look at this with me. This, this is very intriguing to me. Not only does Jesus communicate to the churches that he is with them, that he's in control, that he's aware of everything that goes on in their lives, but then he gets more specific about himself. In Revelation chapter 1, 
And in chapter 2, even to the church of Smyrna here, he repeatedly refers to himself according to time. According to time. As I read those, all of these references, it struck me and I began to wonder, well, why? Why does Jesus repeatedly refer to himself according to time? And so I began to study and really couldn't figure this out. So I pulled every commentary I had on Revelation. There's about 10 books, went through them. There was no reference to anything about the reason Jesus continues to refer to himself according to time. For example, in Revelation chapter 1 and 2, think about this me. He refers to himself as the firstborn from the dead two times. He refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega two times. Certainly a reference to time. The beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning of the end, that phrase actually is used once. And then three times, Jesus refers to himself as the one who is, who was, and is to come three times. The first and the last three times. Forevermore, one time. Those are recurring, repetitive phrases over and over again in these early chapters, instances that Jesus refers to himself according to time. And so as I begin to pray and think about this, I begin to realize Jesus wants his churches, he wants us as his followers to understand that he is timeless. The Lord Jesus Christ is outside of time. He is beyond time as we understand it. In John chapter 1, 1, he describes Jesus as being cosmic. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or in the beginning was Jesus, Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, even from the beginning. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Jesus said to the religious leaders, before Abraham, before Abraham was born, I was. I lived, I existed. Jesus is revealing a message here of his eternal nature. I am the one who was dead, and I'm alive. I am the one who lives forevermore. So why does that matter? What is the relevance of that to us? Let me share with you three perspectives, some things that I feel like the Lord helped me to understand. The first, this is relevant because your life and my life is brief. Our lives are brief. I'm starting to feel the brevity more all of the time. James says, your life, my life is like a mist. It's like a vapor that is here for a short time and then disappears. It quickly vanishes. The Bible says that your life is like a flower of the field that soon will fade. Your life is like grass. The Bible says that will soon wither. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote that life is only a few days full of trouble and then it is 
gone. It is no more. Jesus once described in the Gospels a man who lived for himself. His purpose for living was to acquire more and more wealth, of accumulating more and more, reaching for that which was newer and bigger and better. And Jesus describes him as a man who saved everything he acquired, who even invested it. He laid up treasures on earth. And then after he'd accumulated so much, he said, I'll retire. I'll retire now and I'll kick back and I'll live the good life and maybe buy myself a beach condo and every morning I'll walk along the shore and pick up seashells and every afternoon I'll slip off and get 18 holes in. I'm now going to live the good life. Do you remember what Jesus said about him? Jesus said, what a fool. Why? Why did, he, why did Jesus refer to the man as a fool? Well, he goes on to answer, because he gave no thought to the brevity of his life. He didn't realize that his life was uncertain, that he might die. No consideration of ever serving anyone else. No thought about where he would spend eternity. And you remember what Jesus said? For tonight, fool, your soul is required of thee. Jesus understood because of sin that results in death that our lives are brief and are uncertain. This is also relevant not only because our lives are brief and uncertain, but because Jesus is in control of time. There's two words in the New Testament for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos refers to quantity of time. Jesus controls time. Jesus controls the kairos time, the quality of time. And so when you and I, like the church at Smyrna, are going through times and seasons where things are changing and there's some stress and some loss and some pain and some accompanying suffering, and when the world appears to be coming unglued and tornadoes come and markets crash and banks close and spiritual leaders fail and fall and on and on and on, when we grow older and our health begins to diminish, there is one who remains constant. One who is constant, one who never changes, one who is eternal, one who is with us and who is aware of everything we are experiencing. He's aware of every thought and one who cares and is in control. I need to be reminded of that every day of my life. There is one that you and I can rely upon. There's one that we can hold on to. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His nature is immutable. There is no variation or shadow of change with him. God cannot lie. His word is reliable. His word is true and faithful. And so like the Christians at Smyrna, when you and I are struggling, when 
Things are uncertain and we're anxious. Entertaining fears about our days. Anxious about tomorrow. What might happen tomorrow? Anxious about what all, all the what ifs, all the what ifs of life. Jesus speaks into us through his word and says to these churches as he speaks to us, remember me and rest in me. I am eternal. I am the same yesterday, today, forever. I am constant, immutable. I never change. I am with you. I'm aware of everything. I'm in control of every aspect of your life. And so John write this. I want them to know this. I want them to remember this. Their lives are uncertain and brief. I want them to remember who I am, that I'm in control of time. And third, they need to remember what I've done. I am the great one. I am the eternal one. I am the one who is dead and the one who has come to life. I'm the son of God I took on human flesh, became incarnate, born in the likeness of men, submitted myself to suffering and death, even to death on a cross and died. I, the Son of God, one fully equal with God, having the same nature of God, became fully human, took on flesh and died and was buried in the earth. And after lying lifeless, without any lung activity for three days, no breath, without any heart activity, no pulse for three days, without any brain activity, no thoughts for three days. Lying lifeless in a tomb, dead, I am the only one who came to life. Defeating all sin, every sin, every sin that you and I struggle with, every sin, temptation that tempts us to sin, every kind, all kinds, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, all sins, all categories of sin. I defeated all sin and defeated death and have been raised to new life, which is good news. That good news made a permanent impression on those 12 disciples. It was life-changing. John, when he writes this, was in his 90s. He was an old man. His brother James had already been, been beheaded. One of his best friends, the apostle Peter, was arrested and was crucified upside down. He didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like, like Christ. All of the other disciples had all been martyred. They were all convinced that this was true. They'd all seen Jesus die. They had all seen him been raised from the dead. They were confident. They were convinced that he was risen and alive, and all of them were martyred. They were all gone. John was the last one standing. And here, because of his faithfulness, this old man in his 90s, who had been faithfully preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, witnessing, was arrested by Domitian and was banished to an island called Patmos where criminals were sent to die. 
And so there he was banished to spend his remaining days by himself on the earth. And God reveals this message to him, the gospel. Jesus is this correspondent. He's the one delivering this message to the church. And then in verse 9, he commends the church, the church at Smyrna. Notice in verse 9, he says, I know your works. That's the same thing he says about every church. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, all of them, Philadelphia. I know your works. <laughs> Jesus says, I know what you're doing. There might not be other people who know everything you're doing, but I know what you're doing. I know everything you're not doing. I know what you're going through. I know you. I know your works. And it's interesting to the churches, this church at Smyrna, he says, I know you're suffering. I know you're suffering. And I commend you. There are no words of condemnation, no criticism for Smyrna like there was of Ephesus. Remember, he commends Ephesus. But then he says, but I have this against you. There were some words of condemnation. You have abandoned, you have left your first love, but no words of condemnation for Smyrna. They were suffering. He says, I know your tribulation. The word is phlepsis. It's a Greek word that means pressure. Pressure. You, uh, I was thinking about pressure. David says, you remember that? Some of you remember that song? Don't do 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 You remember pressure? Pressing down on me. Pressing down on you. Pressure. It's tribulation. That's what the word means. Tribulation. Phlepsis. Pressure. Jesus says to these Christians in Smyrna, I know your tribulation. I know the pressure that's upon you. Tough days for you and your family. The pressure is severe. It was a form of suffering. And what's crazy, the, the pressure, the tribulation they were experiencing was because of their faith. Because of their faith. So, Maybe start thinking about this a little bit. In life, there's going to be some tribulation. How many of you would say there's a certain amount of pressure that you deal with in life? That's, there's going to be some of that. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, while you live, you will have tribulation. You will have some pressure. But do you remember what else he said? But be of good cheer. I've overcome it. And so I started thinking about in this life, there's going to be tribulation, there's going to be pressure. So I decided if I'm going to have to experience tribulation, pressure, and some suffering that comes with it, then I can either go through it with him or I can go through it without him. And so to me, it just makes sense that if I got to go through it, I would prefer to go through it with him Resting in him, trusting in him, this one who never changes, this one who is faithful, this one who is with me and for me, is in control of everything. I choose to go through it with him. Jesus commends the Christians at Smyrna, I know your pressure, I know the tribulation that you are under, and I also, he says, I know your blasphemy. Specifically, blasphemy that's being leveled against you by the ultimate blasphemer, Satan. 
There's a reference there to a segment of the Jewish population who hated Jesus. And they rejected the gospel. And Jesus in the text actually refers, refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. They were doing anything and everything they could to attack Christians, to poison public opinion against them, further contributing to pressure, to tribulation. And if that weren't enough, Jesus also says, not only do I know the tribulation, the pressure that you're under, not only do I know these attacks that are being leveled against you, but I also know your poverty, your poverty. There are two words in the New Testament that are synonyms for poverty. One word is penis and the other is pochia. So one type of poverty, penis, is the type where you're just struggling to meet basic needs. Some of you have been there, struggling just to meet basic needs. But then there's pochia, and that's another kind of poverty where it means you're struggling to the point where you're having to beg, where you're resorting to asking for alms. The Christians at Smyrna, having fled for their lives, having left their homes and their jobs and their occupations because of their commitment, their faithfulness to Christ, are now classified by Jesus to be in the pochia camp, in the pochia category, meaning they were working as slaves and many resorted to begging. How many of you dads today if things got so bad for you and there was no work and no opportunities where you literally had to resort to going out on the streets and begging to do anything that you could in order to provide for your household, for your family, that that was all that there was. That's what they're experiencing. Tribulation, pressure, attacks, poverty, they're suffering. And if there was any church, any group of Christians who had every reason to collapse and throw in the towel, it would have been these Christians in Smyrna. But unlike the church at Ephesus who had left their first love, this church remained faithful. And in verse 9, not only does Jesus says, I also know the tribulation and I know you're being attacked and I know your poverty, but he, and you're experiencing tribulation, but notice what Jesus, he adds that little phrase. Now, I know you're impoverished, but you're rich. You're rich. You have something that matters. You have something that money cannot buy. I remember conversation I had some years ago with my dad and he was always acting goofy and cutting up half the time I couldn't tell when he was serious and when he was not and I remember one time he asked me about our kids our three daughters and our son he said how much money would you take for one of your kids I didn't know if he was serious or being goofy, and I said, 
And he asked me again, how much, how much money would you take for one of your kids? And I said, oh, I don't even know how to answer that. There's, there's no amount of money that I would take for one of my kids. And he said, he said so therefore you, you have something that money can't buy. It's priceless. You're rich. If you think about these Christians at Smyrna, in the midst of their tribulation, their pressure, and their attacks, and their poverty, and their suffering, Jesus sees them and he says, you're rich. You have a relationship with me. You've experienced my grace, my mercy. Your sins are forgiven. I'm with you. I'm working for you. And guess what? You have hope. Eternal life. The gospel. You are rich. I would, I would say the Christians at Smyrna were a poor, rich church. Completely different than the Laodicean church that we'll see in a few weeks. And Laodicea, that chapter 3, verse 17, that church, Jesus says, they viewed themselves as rich and wealthy and they didn't think that they needed anything, but Jesus viewed them quite differently. He said, you may think you're rich and wealthy and have everything you need. Jesus says, I see you and I see you as poor and blind and miserable and wretched. You have nothing. In their suffering, their tribulation, their attacks, they were rich. Jesus is the correspondent. He commends them. And then in verse 10, he issues this command. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And he warns them for more tribulation, more hardship, more suffering is coming. You're going to be tested for 10 days. And some of you are even going to be cast into prison. But don't be afraid. It is never fun to go through tests. It's never any fun. Some of you are being tested this morning. There's things in your life that are stretching you and you're struggling with. There's tests that you're experiencing. And it's never fun, but testing is always God's means for building faith. There's a weird verse in James 1, you know it. Count it all joy when you are tested. Isn't that weird? Count it all joy when you're tested, when you're struggling, when you're experiencing tribulation and pressure. Why? He says, because the testing of your faith is what I, God, will use to bring you to myself, to teach you to depend on me, to draw you closer, to build your faith and your patience in me. It's like building muscle. Uh, I got a picture this week of a young guy. He grew up in the church. He was a skinny little, scrawny little kid. His name was Brandon. And his parents called me last week. They knew about some of the tornadoes here in Mississippi and they just called to see if Mindy and I were okay. I said, we're doing fine. So then they told me about this little skinny kid that grew up in the church and he's a bodybuilder and they sent me some pictures and it's pretty crazy looking. I mean, pretty crazy. I mean, he's on something. You know. <laughs> I didn't tell him that, but he, James, he's juicing up with something to look like that. Muscle 
you, you work it, you tear it down in order to build it up. God loves you, he loves me, he wants us to be close to him, and sometimes the only way that he can get that to occur is to tear us down in order to teach us to run to him. He tests our faith to strengthen us, to strengthen us, to draw us closer to him. The text finally closes with some counsel. Again, no words of condemnation, no reprimands for these suffering Christians at Smyrna, only encouragement. They were hurting, they were suffering tribulation and poverty, and Jesus says to them in verse 10, be faithful, remain faithful unto death. Unto death. You've been saved by grace, you also will be sustained by grace. For even when we are faithless, he is faithful. There's a, a Bible verse from 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It's one of the first Bible verses I can ever remember memorizing because it was a Bible verse that we sing about in a hymn. And so I memorized it as a little kid. For I know whom I have believed and have persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Any of you ever remember singing that hymn? You know what that verse is about? Paul is saying, I have confidence I have confidence in him. The one that I have come to know, the one who has saved me by his grace is also the one who will keep me, who will keep my commitment unto him against that day, until that day. He will hold me and sustain me and take care of me. I want to urge you this morning, the same way that Jesus Counsels the church at Smyrna, stay in the race. Stay in the race. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Run the course. Stay faithful unto death. Writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 says, seeing then that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with perseverance. Let us run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross and Endured all of this, the despising, all of the shame. What was the joy? You know what that joy was? The joy was that he knew he was pleasing his heavenly father. He knew that he was pleasing God. It was for that joy, that pleasure that kept him in the race. Jesus promises to these Christians at Smyrna, one day you will receive a crown. I will give you the crown of life. That's the Stephanus. The word is the victor's crown. I will give you life for all eternity. Mindy and I uh, have devoted our lives 
to pastoring our entire life. That's, that's been first, functioning as shepherds, trying our best by God's grace to equip and care for God's people for almost our entire time together. Next year will mark our 40th year in pastoral ministry. It's a long time. Someone asked me one time, he was a seminary student writing a paper for a seminary class, so he had to interview me. He said, I had to interview a pastor, and so he came and interviewed me. He said, tell me what you like most about being a pastor. And I said, well, that's easy. It's people. And so we talked about that for a minute, and then he said his follow-up question. He says, well, tell me what you like least about being a pastor. I said, well, that's easy too. It's people. <laughs> and you ask any pastor, this is not just me, you ask any pastor, wife, who've been in ministry for a long, long time, and they will say the same thing. While it is not always easy, they will say, there's some blessings in it, and there's some joys in it, and God, I will say, um, for many of I, God has been faithful to us. Not easy, but he's been faithful to us, and God has been good to our family. During the early years of pastoral ministry, man, I was excited. I had finished seminary, and so God called us to this little church in a coal mining community in western Kentucky, and a small church, and so I was excited to go there and get started, and so it was full time. And personnel team, you, you all might find this interesting. My, what they gave me, they, I still have it. There's a little five by seven index card that you write recipes on. And they handed that to me, and that was my pastoral contract. And it said $250 a week, two weeks vacation, and I don't know if it said anything besides that or not. That was the contract. And I was excited to get started. Well, $250 a week, $1,000 a month, $12,000 a year. That was before taxes. Had to pay my own health insurance. In a little tiny church, they didn't pay very, I mean, that's, that wasn't very much. And so for several years, that church and some other churches that I, where God places, in addition to working full-time as a pastor, I had to start finding part-time jobs to supplement our income in order to provide for our family. So working full-time, sometimes working two and three part-time jobs. Mindy also bundled up four little kids and would go clean houses. Mindy would go clean in a house with four little kids. And so we, God provided. It wasn't easy, but God provided. And I remember some lean times when we had to go to a pastor. And some of you remember several weeks ago that I told you the guy that meant a lot to me, that kind of mentored me, his name was Kurt Yarbrough, and he was here, you remember? Minnie and I went to them on several occasions and borrowed money for groceries, trying to make ends meet, driving old clunker cars. Thank God for the Sears credit card. That's where we got all the repairs done. I even learned how to do some repairs myself. And so things were difficult, and when I, then on top of that, when opposition and criticism occurred, coupled with meager, visible results, and when the fruit of our labor seemed sparse, discouragement came calling. And I got tired, and I got tired of it. 
And I felt like God had forgotten us, had worked, had prepared, was doing everything I knew to do, and had serious thoughts of walking away. And I remember praying, God, you've got the wrong guy. I don't think that I can do this year after year after year. I think I've had my limit. And looking back, I can see now how God sustained us and how God taught us some valuable lessons going through some of those things. And they were, again, weren't fun, weren't pleasant at the time, but I wouldn't trade them now. There are two things that have kept us in the fight, and I want to close with this. Two things that have kept us in the race. You know what Jesus says to the Smyrna Christians, be faithful, remain faithful unto death. Two things that sustained us. Number one was our sense of calling. God's call upon our life has never left and has continued to hold strong. And the second has been we have witnessed and experienced God working faithfully through his word. I've been greatly encouraged personally through study Time alone with God in his word. And I've been encouraged watching God work in his church through the ministry of the word. And learned the only thing that really will sustain us is God in his word. God does not call all of us, most of you, are not called to full-time vocational ministry. However, he does call all of us unto himself to follow him, to take up a cross, and to live for him on a full-time basis. We all share that together. And I'm saying this, I promise you that as you live for Christ, testing is going to come. Spiritual testing. There's going to be some discouragement that comes. There might be some difficulty. Uh, that is no respecter of persons. And discouragement may visit you. But God will revive, will revive you through and by his word. Some of you this morning are going through some challenges, through some difficulties, struggling with some decisions, perhaps even to the point of hurting, and you're trying to cope. And I've shared this with you before. After living a few years, I've discovered that life is hard for every person. Life is hard. And everyone is trying to figure out how to cope. How to cope. And there's all different ways that people are turning to to cope. Some try to cope with education. If only I can get a good education, then I'll get a good career and I'll make a lot of money and then I'll be fulfilled. That's how I'll cope. And other people cope through drugs becomes an escape. It becomes a way to cope. Others cope through food. They, they find emotional strength and come through food. Others cope through alcohol where they can just drink and escape some of the pressure, some of the pain for a while. Some cope through sex, just trying to find something that provides some excitement, something new, something different. And I've learned the only thing that makes sense, the only thing that sustains, the only thing that brings peace and purpose as you live life is faith in God. Nothing else will cope. Nothing else will work. Only through a personal relationship with Christ. 
I want to encourage you this morning to abide in Christ, to abide in his word in prayer, to keep yourself, keep your life under the ministry of his word, under preaching, under teaching. And God will be faithful to you. He'll be faithful. He'll speak to you, encourage you through his word like nothing else can. I invite you to pray with me. As Don and our musicians come,